Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Amen. Would you take your Bibles and open them to 2 Timothy chapter 3, 2 Timothy chapter 3, and Acts chapter 17. We'll start in 2 Timothy 3 and we're going to land in Acts chapter 17 in a Bible study that I've entitled, Reaching Our Generation with the Gospel. Reaching Our Generation with the Gospel. This is our third study in the series, Future Past, or the series that we've called Loving the Past but Living the Future. As God is desiring us to enter into a fresh new year, building upon the foundation of Jesus Christ and being appreciative of all that God has done for us and through us in our church family. But we're moving forward as we've learned. We're pressing on this one thing I do. And that one thing is the main thing, and the main thing is worshiping Jesus and following him wholeheartedly. Now, a few years ago, a ministry known as Evangelism Explosion did a survey of the American church. They did a survey of congregations in the United States, and they came back with some startling statistics. One of the statistics they shared was this. They said that 95%... Listen, 95% of those that were surveyed in the American church never led another person to faith in Jesus Christ. 95%. I began to think about that in the life of our own church family. If that statistic is true, if it's true, just in our church, that literally means that thousands upon thousands of people that call Calvary Church their home have never shared the gospel, and led someone else to faith in Jesus Christ. That means that if we segregated the room just today into groups of 100 people, and we said, okay, if you've ever led someone to Jesus Christ, stand still, and the rest of you walk away, that means in groups of 100, 95 people would walk away. And you know, that's not the heart of God for 95% of the church not to be sharing the gospel in and through their lives. Think of that number in the broader scope of the larger church, that believers simply are not telling others about the love of Jesus Christ. It it shouldn't be. As James would say, it ought not to be. Clearly, church, Jesus has given us our marching orders to go into all the world and share the gospel with every living creature, to make disciples, But unfortunately, not many are doing that. And yet, in our own church, the vision of our church is reduced down to one word, isn't it? Evangelism, with a responsibility to win, disciple, and send. I mean, that's the very core and heartbeat of our church, that we're saved to share. And yet, so many aren't doing it. Recently, I saw a statement on a wall in a church. It was actually in a picture where two pastors were there and behind the pastors on the wall that they were standing in front of was a phrase that struck me. I've adopted it into my own life and been meditating upon it and I have adopted it through the leadership of our church. And here's the statement, and I quote, we will do anything short of sin to reach people who don't know Christ. I thought that was a powerful statement, that we will do anything short of sin. We won't compromise. We won't sin, we won't water down the gospel. We will do anything short of sin to reach people who don't know Christ. And to that statement I say, yes, yes we will. That's God's mandate upon our lives, to extend the gospel to those around us. The gospel, it's the good news from God. But what is the gospel? And that's a good question to ask. Let me summarize it for you in a short paragraph. Here's the gospel. All of mankind is separated from God by sin. No matter what we do or how good we are, we will never meet God's holy and righteous standards. But God loved us so much that 2,000 years ago, he came to earth as a man, lived a perfect life, and he died on a cross in our place and rose again from the dead. And if we will turn away from our sin and put our faith in Jesus Christ, 
we can be forgiven. However, if a person rejects Jesus Christ, then they will face a certain judgment eternally separated from God. That's it. That's the gospel. That your sins can be forgiven. It's powerful. It's so powerful that it caused Paul the apostle, when he's writing to the church in Rome, to declare for all to hear, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Jesus would put it this way, if you believe in the Son, you will be saved, and the Son, S-O-N, speaking of himself, and if you don't believe, you will be damned. The gospel is simple and powerful, and it doesn't take much effort to recognize that we live in desperate times, difficult times. I ask you to open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3, because in 2 Timothy 3, we have Paul once again, inspired by God, to write to a young man by the name of Timothy. And he's helping this young man lead a church and oversee people's souls and help them grow. And more importantly, to reach a city with the gospel, to see a city impacted, the city of Ephesus, to see it impacted by the powerful message of the gospel. And so what does he say in 2 Timothy 3, verse one? He tells Timothy, and he tells us today, know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. Now I find it interesting, don't you? That here in the beginning stages of the first century, the last days are mentioned. Because the last days is a phrase that refers to the imminent, that, that imminent desire in the hearts of people for the return of Jesus Christ. Every generation of believers from the very first generation lived with a deep expectancy of the coming of Jesus Christ and that the last days are not just ahead of us or even the days in which we live, the last days, that really started when Jesus ascended into heaven, that he would have us to live expectantly for him. And so this is something that we're to look at and no doubt the days in which we live are the last days. We are closer to the coming of Jesus Christ than ever before. Because this is one of the things that people tend to make fun of when it comes to the coming of the Lord, that the belief that we have that Jesus Christ will return. Because you'll have people say, well, you know, that's something that my grandmother would say, something that my great-grandmother would say. Even my mom used to talk about Jesus is coming again. And here I am 50 years later and Jesus hasn't come. Well, let me give you a couple things to consider. First of all, if you chose to live your life with the expectancy of the return of Jesus Christ, you did not waste your life. It was a good thing you chose to live in such a way where you lived a holy and righteous life expecting the return of Jesus. It wasn't wasted. Let me give you a second thought. Let's say that you've been waiting for Jesus Christ's soon return for 50 years. Well, let me tell you something. It is closer now. You are 50 years closer to the coming of the Lord than you were when you first started. And you live in such a way where you know he's returning, the last days. So how does he describe the last days? Notice verse two. Men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Notice verse five. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power. From such people turn away. For of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women, loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, also learning and never, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of truth. Then he gets down to, to describing two men by name. He says in verse eight. Now as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, this is a true story he's pulling from the Old Testament, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds disapprove concerning the faith, but they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all as theirs also was. 
I mean, never have we ever seen, never at any time in history have we seen this, these characteristics so common in our culture. Now, I want you to be careful because since you live in the culture of the United States, you may limit this list just to the culture in which you live. But this is not merely a United States of America issue. This is a world issue. If you travel anywhere in the world, the human heart is dark everywhere. These issues come up all over. The depravity of man, the difficulties that people face, the the issues of, I mean, just the first one, the lovers of themselves. You may not use that phrase today, but I'll tell you how you describe lovers of themselves, narcissism. Has there ever been a time in all of history where narcissism is at the highest level that it's ever been? I mean, social media has assured this and fed it, and it continues on where the most important people in culture are celebrities, that everybody's following and listening and buying what the celebrities are saying and presenting. I read recently that one celebrity was paid $250,000 for just one Instagram post. All she needed to do was post one Instagram picture and she was paid $250,000 for that. Can I just say something's wrong with a culture when things like that take place? It's so wrong. And yet, it's our generation. So the generation that Timothy was in, he had problems. The generation that we are in, we have problems. Our generation, in many ways, is no different than past generations. People are people. However, our generation is very different in so many ways. Our generation today is more fractured from each other than ever before. I mean, the things that they promised us that would bring us together have actually separated us. And we are in that social media generation. This is the generation, if the Lord doesn't return, that the scientists will be doing studies on this generation, and then they'll be sharing, pastors in the future perhaps will be sharing statistics of just how jacked up we are because of those phones. How it literally changed the way we think. It literally changed the way we act. It literally changed the way we interact. I mean, if you think about it, using the language of the day, the the reality of social media has created new categories of people and friendships that never existed before. Friendships used to exist eye to eye. You used to be able to see and experience, and now there are these cyber friendships, and there are things, and you know, those of us that might be a little older, we go, yeah, look at this generation. It wasn't like that when we were growing up. It wasn't like, I can't believe this generation. Hold on there, hold on. Because let me tell you something. If the generation in which you grew up had the same things we have today, no doubt they would affect you. You'd be into them. You're not into them now, perhaps, not as much as others because you didn't grow up with them. But the reality of our generation, we we have this sense of, well, you could say our generation is the us generation, or more appropriately, you could say that we are the I generation. And not just internet generation, as the I might represent, but rather the I, me, myself, and I generation. We live in a very difficult time where even among the church family, pastors are challenged. We're challenged to teach the word of God to people that don't want the word of God, that seem to not have any time for God's word. Worse than that, not only are we crunched for time, but many people in churches today have no desire for the word of God. You have no desire to hear what God has to say. Your desires are focused elsewhere. And we've forgotten the main thing is the main thing and gotten caught up with the cares and concerns of life just like Jesus told us not to and he warned us. The very technology that was designed and supposed to give us more free time has only demanded our time and kept us tethered to it like a leash or like a ball and chain. And then there's our kids and our grandkids. Our poor kids and grandkids are in the battle of their lives. They are in the battle for their very souls but don't recognize it. And God has ordained in his word that parents help kids grow up in the culture in which they live. And our parents are the ones that are to stand in the gap. Yet the enemy of our souls, the devil, is very slick. And he has pulled so many parents out of the home. He has taken parents out of their lives. 
And parenthood has been delegated in some other place in some other way. And our culture is paying the price for it. Our churches are paying the price. In a much greater way, we live in a fatherless generation. And I don't have the latest statistic, but taking the father out of the home has wrecked lives, has destroyed relationships. And the statistics that are in the world, as the world is marrying and divorcing, and then redefining marriage and getting into all kinds of, the statistics of the world have infiltrated the church so that the divorce rate in the church is sometimes even higher than it is proportionally in the world. And the gospel hangs in the balance. You go, how do you reach a generation like this? How is it that, that we are able to navigate into a, into a culture that is anti-God? Or like in the book of Judges, so many thousands of years ago, we live in a culture where everyone is doing right what is right in their own eyes. There is more stealing today. There is more cheating today. There is more lying today. There's more drinking, more drunkenness, more drug use, more sexual immorality among the youth within the church, in the world than ever before. I don't think I need to convince you that we're in dark days and difficult times where people are calling good evil and evil good. And so the question is, how do we reach our generation with the unchanging gospel of Jesus Christ? And I'll tell you this, we reach our culture the same way you reach a lost culture 100 years ago, 200 years ago, 2,000 years ago, because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ that changes lives one by one, family by family. And it comes through our lips. It comes through our lips. You know, I'm, I'm involved in a lot of uh, interaction with other pastors and other churches. I have the privilege of serving and encouraging and exhorting. So I find myself around leaders a lot. And I've, I've heard this phrase that is coming into the language of pastors, which I'm very encouraged and very happy about. And the phrase is, and I was, we just had, thank you for your prayers, we just had our pastor's breakfast. It was very successful, very beneficial, very encouraging for the pastors in the morning and their wives in the evening. I was so grateful. Thank you for praying. At the table I was sitting at, at the pastor's breakfast, one of the brothers there, he's replanting a Baptist church just north of us in Aurora. He was talking about that, and he said something like this, and I won't quote, but I've heard this more than once. He said, the days of just opening your doors and waiting for people to come are over. And to that I say amen. But here in our church, we have never adopted that mindset. We've never had a mindset, well, you know, if we just show up and we just open the doors and we'll just sit around and wait for people to come. No, no, those days, if they've ever existed in any church anywhere, I declare them, they are over and they never should have started to begin with. The mandate of Jesus Christ is for us to go. It's for us to, the, the, the relationship that you have with Jesus Christ is one of infiltration. It's not of isolation. That the vision of our church is what? When disciple and stay. No, no, it's not. It's when disciple and Send, and there's, that send is applied in a variety of different ways. Some of you are future world missionaries and we'll have the privilege of praying for you and sending you off. Some of you are going to be church planters and we'll pray for you and send you off. But all of us are sent into the culture in which we're in. And you're gonna be sent off in just a few minutes. If you stick around for the huddle, then you'll leave after that. But you will be sent into the world where God wants you. And so today we come to Acts chapter 17 and learn five things that we can adapt into our own lives to reach this culture with the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 17, Paul the apostle is in the city of Athens in Greece. It is, the, it is a very large city with a large hill in the middle known as the Areopagus and and so in the Areopagus is where you would build, that where the pagans would build their largest pagan temple. And on the side of the hill is an area known as Mars Hill. And Mars Hill will be referenced here as, you come, as they come together and discuss philosophy and religious things and they would all just come together and talk. That's where we are in Acts 17. Pick up with me in verse 16. Acts 17 verse 16. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore, 
he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. And some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. So if you're taking notes, five things that will help us reach our generation. Five things. Number one, we need to have a burden for the lost. We must have a burden for the lost to be personally provoked by what we see in our culture. Notice it says in verse 16 that as Paul was hanging out in Athens, his spirit was provoked. If you like to write in your Bible, circle that word provoked. It literally means exasperated, irritated, or roused to anger. And why? Because he saw the city was given over to idols. They were idol worshipers. There was no, no representation of the one true God. The gospel had not yet penetrated Athens, and Paul is upset about it. He has a burden for the lost. It moved him. And so we have to ask, our, ask the question, what do you see and what do you feel when you look out at Denver that's given to idolatry? What do you see when you see a nation that has turned their back on God? What do you see when you look globally and see some nations never turn to God to begin with? How do you feel? I'll tell you, a lot of times the passion of believers is literally stolen and ripped off by social media because you will see something on the news, you will feel something, you'll hear about something, and immediately your fingers go, and you say this, and you post that, and I can't believe that, and all the passion is stolen and ripped off instead of this provocation sending you to your knees in prayer and asking God, how do you want me to be a, a solution to the darkness of this world? How do you want me to be a solution? I mean, it's one thing to post what you feel and your opinions, but really, how is that bringing a person to Jesus Christ? How is that changing a life? You see, the culture sometimes shapes us instead of us shaping the culture. How, how, do, how do we respond to the feelings? I mean, I'm just as upset as you are. When I see in our own country on the East Coast in New York, a smiling governor sitting at a desk signing a piece of paper that according to that government now, it is okay to kill a baby seconds before birth. It's absolutely tragic. And yet, what's the church's response? I'll tell you, the church's response is to turn the light of the gospel on, to stand in the gap for these poor girls that are worried and those, these girls, these folks that have got themselves in trouble, of which Marie and I were once there, these teenagers that were lost that needed help. You see, the light of the gospel dispels darkness. And I have to say, as you think about the gospel, this is a problem. This is a problem. You know, we, we see the political issues. We see governments becoming legalized drug dealers for tax purposes. We see all this, but here's the problem. This is where we're trapped. And I'm asking you to consider this from where you sit and where you live. Sometimes, those outside of the church, they look in and they only know us for what we're against and what we're mad about and what we're upset about. The world needs to hear about Jesus Christ. They need to know the church by the love that flows through us. They need to feel the love that comes through an abiding relationship with Jesus Christ. We need to be the neighbor that Jesus calls us to be. You know why? Because we are neighbors to so many. And it's one thing to be provoked, but what does it lead you to? How do you respond? The world needs to hear about Jesus Christ and we need to tell them about God's love and grace and live out God's love and grace and extend God's love and grace to live it out with them. And so some would say, well, wait a minute, Ed. Here in the United States, everybody knows the gospel. I mean, why would I be sharing the gospel? Everybody's heard the gospel, not so. Do you know it is actually here in Aurora, coming from Southern California, of course, with the saturation of churches, I, I didn't meet anyone in the time that I was saved that, that would say, I've never heard of the Bible or Jesus, or I've never heard. But when I moved here and we were being, 
beginning to prepare and plan for gathering together and teaching the Bible and just getting together, we started talking to people at Wendy's and different places we were in because we didn't know anybody. And as we were talking to people and sharing the gospel with them, I met a person for the very first time in my Christian life that did not know the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I was a little shocked because I think in my mind, I thought, well, everybody knows. But here's another thing to consider. People that say they know the gospel may have never heard the real gospel. They never have, maybe never have heard the reality, you know, because there's a lot of fakes out there. Some people think that getting rich and owning a lot of things is actually the gospel. Some, some people think that it's only for to live your best life now. That's the gospel. Some, some people think that, you know, God is just a, an eternal, you know, puppet and genie-like character that's just designed to give you everything. That's the gospel. But see, the gospel can be so watered down that people that say they know the gospel really have never heard the gospel. And we need to be able to share with them the true reality of their present condition. I mean, many, many, many people have not heard the real gospel. Jesus Christ and him crucified, risen again, the only solution to the issue of sin and the problem of sin in our lives. He's the only way. Do you have a burden, church? The lost are not our enemies. Those that are struggling in sin are not our enemies. They are ones that Jesus Christ died for. Men, women, boys and girls that are confused, living in a perpetual darkness, living in a perpetual fog, not being able to see what's ahead and not really understanding spiritual things. And I've just found this to be true. If we don't care, we won't share. I mean, if you really don't care, then your life is recognized and and represented by not caring. Setting aside all the little things, well, it's hard to share and I don't know what to say and all those, setting all that aside, I find it amazing that we, we can have conversations about all sorts of things, but shy away from the most important conversation you could ever have with a person about their souls. So if we're gonna impact this generation with the gospel, we, we, ha- we need to have a burden. Number two, notice verse 19. Verse 19. It says that they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Now that's an interesting phrase because these guys, man, they, they're, they're, they are thinking about philosophy and issues of life and all kinds of things, eternity. And then what Jesus, what Paul's sharing with them is strange because the gospel is a strange thing to ears. Notice, therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear of some new thing. Now, if you have your Bibles open and you've got a pen, I want you to write next to verse 21. Something that you can't miss. So next to verse 21 in Acts 17, write these words. Social media. Doesn't this sound like social media to you? Listen, it says these guys, all they did was spend their time in nothing else. Let me change it for today's language. They spent their time in nothing else but either to post or to see some new and hear and read some new thing. You see, it's not just a modern invention to waste our time on nothing. And they had a place in Athens known as Mars Hill where that's what they would do. That's all they would do, just talk about stuff talk about stuff, things that relevant, not relevant, philosophies, ideas. You could say Mars Hill was the place where everybody shared their opinions and argued and got mad and probably walked away unfriending each other at times. I don't want this anymore. You see, if we're going to reach this generation, number two, we need to go where the people are. We need to go where the people are. As I mentioned, isolation is not the call of God upon our lives, but to recognize that we have infiltrated this world. We are a part of this world. We live in this culture. We eat in this culture. We shop in this culture. We engage in this culture. It's where we live. That's just the way it is. But do you see yourself, as Jesus said in Matthew 13, as the light of the world, as the salt of the earth? You know, do you see yourself as a flavoring agent in a lost and dying world or are you just good at seeing the bad things and then pointing your finger at them? Knowing full well that many of us were exactly in that same place. Many of us. Till I was was age 23, that was me. I was the lostness that you see every day. 
I was the hopeless one. I was the one that, you know, I find myself that I'm so grateful, I'm so grateful that God would reach the lost because he reached you and he reached me and we are the salt of the earth. We don't want to lose our flavor. We're the light of the world. And you know, lights shine the brightest in very dark places. He says, Jesus says, this is Matthew chapter 5 in verse 15, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, so it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine. You know, this Christmas, I was given a, a present. It was a lamp. And I'll tell you what I didn't do. I didn't take that lamp and put it under our bed, plug it in, and just leave it there. You know what I did? I put that lamp on my desk at my house, and whenever I'm working in my desk in my home office, I just turn it on, and I enjoy it. And it gives the kind of light, that ambient light, that is good for my office and good for my studying. We don't take lamps and shove them under the bed. We display them and use them, and they normally get turned on when? When it gets dark. You see, as believers... It's easy to see the darkness of this world. And whenever you acknowledge darkness, remember you're the light. You're the light. Well, wait a minute, Pastor Ed. We're talking about the gospel and sharing the gospel. That's what you do. The pastor shares the gospel and we pray for you. Well, thank you very much. I do share the gospel and I thank you for your prayers. But again, away with the days, and I don't think we've had this, this, this mindset in our church, but in the general church it is, and that is, you know what, that's what we pay the pastor to do. That is not in the Bible. Did you know that? We are the church. All of us share the gospel. That even if I wasn't a pastor, many years I wasn't a pastor. I didn't have that role or responsibility. And you know what I did? The same thing I'm doing now in the gifting and talents that God gave to me. And in your own gifting, in your own talent, your own personality, God is wanting you to go to the people. You already go to the people every day, all day. Jesus was out and about among the sinners. Paul went to the very place where they were talking about things and shared the gospel. And the gospel message is most effective where it's needed the most, among those that need to hear it. Notice verse 22. Verse 22. Then Paul stood up in the midst of the Areopagus and said, men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. Now, Paul was taken to the place where all this discussion and debate was going on, and he sees it as an opportunity. Be careful here, okay? He seizes it an opportunity not to share another one of his opinions on the philosophies of the day or the goings-on of the day. The opportunity was to present the gospel. That was the open door. And so when he comes to this place, he shares the gospel, and he does it in a way that we all must learn. So let me give you number three. The third thing that is important to reach this generation is this. We need to tactfully connect people to Jesus. Tactfully. T-A-C-T. Tact. I have to say, I think you could, some of you can agree, the church of Jesus Christ isn't always known for its tactfulness. Instead, we're often known by our judgmentalism, our hypocrisy, and our ability to find everything wrong in the world while we never really deal with the log that's in our own eye. It's just the way it is. And we need to learn to be tactful. I love someone's definition. I jotted it down. I don't remember where I read it. But here's the definition of tact. The art of making a point without making an enemy. (laughs) I like that. The art of making a point without making an enemy. When sharing the gospel with someone, it's important to build a bridge, not burn one. You know, don't, don't come up to someone in a, uh, that's out walking down the street. Maybe you're at the 16th Street Mall and you're getting dinner. You go, hey, honey, let's go share the gospel. And you look at someone and you say, hey, sinner, come here. <laughs> you're drunk. Don't you know how bad things are? You're lost. You're going to hell. But I've got the good news. You know, sometimes you hear a message like this and you're like, okay, I, I'm ready. I've been, this is resonating with my heart. I'm ready to share the gospel. Please don't go to work tomorrow morning stand up on your desk and say, attention sinners, 
My name is Ed, employee 57832, and God has sent me to you to tell you you're a bunch of sinners, and you know it. And I have the good news. Tact is very important, isn't it? You know what I have found over the years? What I have found is this. I don't really need to spend much time convincing someone they're a sinner. Oh, I don't shy away from it, and I I don't minimize it, but I don't spend a lot of time convincing. Like, if you would have come to my house with the gospel, I would have told you without any hesitation, I'm a sinner. And you know what I would have said? And I like it that way. I like my life. I would put on some kind of front and say, oh, there's no problem in my life. You know, my wife's in the other room packing, ready to leave. No problem. She's going to leave me for the third time. I got great life. I've got to go to court next week to face something. I got a big fine. I don't have my driver. Oh, yeah, great life. Oh, wonderful. I wake up with headaches all the time, and I don't remember where I was there. Oh, beautiful life. You don't need to convince me, because deep down inside, behind the facade, I was a crushed man. You know what I do need to convince people of, though, is hope. Because sin makes a person hopeless. It it makes a person feel, and I remember having this feeling, I, at the age of 22, have already ruined my life. It's irrecoverable. I've already got a criminal record. I've already got this. I've got a child as a teenager. Uh, My girlfriend and my wife is leaving me. I've already ruined my life. So what's left? There's no way out. So I know what I chose was just keep doing the same thing. And then addiction gets in there and now I'm doing more of the same thing and getting more. Like the convincing bridge for someone is not, we we tend to have so much of a focus on sin in their lives when the focus needs to be the hope of forgiveness. People know that they're sinners. Yeah, there may be a little bit of conversation and there may be a little bit of reflection and we, may, we need to, to be able to communicate to them the repentance of their sin. I'm not saying that we don't do that. But, but man, the real message is there's hope in Jesus Christ that God loved you so much that he sent his own son. Imagine that, you that are hopeless today. Imagine that, though that you th- those of you that think your life is ruined and it's irrecoverable. God has put me in this little church in this little time for whoever hears my voice just to tell you that Jesus Christ can save a soul and your life right now is not irretrievable and it's not hopeless. God loves to restore and he does that through relationship. He can do a work. And so who gets the last laugh? God gets the last laugh because now God and you know God has allowed us to celebrate in just just a few months 30 years of marriage. That's from the Lord. That's his work. 30 years. You're like, man, I didn't think I was going to make it to 30 years of age. But God had another plan. And when you surrender yourself to Jesus Christ, you start tuning into God's plan in your life. God has another plan for you. And you need to surrender to him and give your life to the God who created you. It's interesting how we need to tactfully connect with them. Paul goes right into their culture. Paul quickly and thoroughly and powerfully and tactfully. One thing he didn't do is, hey guys, I see you're a bunch of idolaters. Don't even worship the one true God. Look at all these statues. What's wrong with you? You even have a statue. You don't even know who the God is. You guys are messed up. He doesn't do that. What does he do? He meets them. He says, hey, I can see you guys are pretty religious. I can see that you really do care about worship. And then I found this one idol. It says to the unknown God. And then the interaction between God and Paul led him to share, hey, let me tell you about the one you don't know. You got identification, all these little idols. Let me tell you about the one you don't know. And he begins to share with them. I mean, it's so beautiful. May the Lord help us to do that. He, he, uses, he uses the situation to build a bridge. Notice verse 24 now. God who made the world and everything in it, here's his message, starts at creation. Since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything. He gives to all life, breath, and all things, verse 26. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. 
Therefore, since we are his offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. He goes right into the culture and relates to them. Which leads us to the fourth point. And that's this. In our gospel presentation, in our church life, in our lives in general, if we're going to reach this generation, we must be culturally relevant to those that are in front of us. We must be relevant. There's no question about it. We can't be irrelevant with the gospel. We need to be relevant to the people that are in front of us. Now, that's a big buzzword today, so let me just clarify for you that when I use the word relevant, I don't mean to water down the gospel. I don't mean to somehow change the message. Listen, let me be crystal clear with you. Never mess with the message. Never. The message never changes. It is the power of God unto salvation. Never mess with the message. But the methods of delivery must change. We must be relevant. Like today, if you were here today and you'd say, I want to be a world missionary and you're going to a, to a place around the world, part of your training would be for you to learn the culture. We want you to learn the culture. You're going to be taking the gospel to a culture and in order to build a bridge, you want to know where you're going. And so part of the training is learn the culture. As a matter of fact, if you're going to another country that speaks another language, we're going to tell you to what? Learn the language. Well, it's too bad that we don't consider ourselves missionaries in our own culture, because we are. Do you know there are two countries today that once the United States sent massive amounts of missionaries to, do you know those two countries today send more missionaries to the U.S. than we do to them? China and South Korea. China and South Korea, they pray for us. There are Chinese and South Koreans right now in their church services praying for us and our culture and our churches to reach this world with the gospel. To me, that's encouraging. But it's also discouraging at the same time because we live in this culture, we know Jesus Christ, and we get so easily distracted from the main thing. We've got to be culturally relevant. And as a church, we're committed to it. We are committed to learning. Notice what Paul did. He quoted one of the poets, one of their poets. He was reading what they were reading, involved in what they were involved in. Now, I have to say, in being involved in the culture, number one, you're already in it. You're already in the culture. You already work in this environment. You already shop in this environment. I'm not advocating any type of sin. Remember, we'll do anything short of sin. And so I've drawn lines in my own life. I don't have to experience every sin in the world in order to understand the brokenness of sin. So I'm not advocating that. But the reality is, is that the greatest offenders of this issue, that the people that tend to be the most irrelevant with the Bible and the gospel happen to be men like me, pastors, who take the Bible that's alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, that, let me tell you, is the absolute most relevant book on the planet Earth, speaking to every single generation. There are pastors today that, in their Bible studies, are answering questions that nobody's asking, or answering questions from generations ago. And as you pray for us, and those of us that stand in the pulpit, pray that we're relevant. Pray that we don't make this book boring, but make it even come more alive to the application in your life. We've got to be relevant. Calvary here, we are committed to this. And we have been from the beginning. And so don't let any of the changes distract you. You've got to keep the main thing the main thing. And we learn the main thing that is the main thing is to passionately pursue Jesus Christ. Or what Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. We must be relevant. It's important to take the gospel and effectively weave it into the culture that we're seeking to reach. You know, we have to use language that people understand. In our building a bridge, we may not use the, I may not use the word sin right away because 
Not only can sin turn people's ears off, but, but some, most people don't even know. And then you go, well, let me explain it to you. The Greek word for sin is harmatia. And then it's like an archer taking an arrow, and we're going to shoot it. And the archer missed the, it missed the mark, and so sin is missing the mark. And the guy's just looking at you like, archery, arrows, targets. What are you talking about? And so you could take the word sin, set it aside for a moment, not forever, but for a moment, and I can tell you right away, if you start talking to people about mistakes, they're with you. Because who, which one of us haven't made a mistake in our lives? You'd start talking to people, well, are you a perfect piece? And oh, come on, I'm not a perfect, nobody's perfect. Exactly. And you begin to speak to them where they're at, so, so you're not perfect. No, I'm not perfect. So, so you've made mistakes. I've made mistakes. Well, check this out. What you call a mistake, God calls sin but it's even greater than the mistakes you make because when you sin, it's a mistake toward God. And there you've taken them with their own language. Relevance is very important. And the, the, the significance of an interaction with someone is to introduce them to Jesus. And what should offend them is not our behavior and our attitude. What should offend them is the cross of Jesus Christ. That's offensive. It's hard to talk to people, let alone talk to them about their own failures, because they have all the defense mechanisms. So you're talking about, I made a mistake. Well, well that means you're not perfect. Well, I know, I'm not perfect, but I'm not like Hitler. Oh, whew. So Ed, what do I do with that? I'm gonna give you what, next time somebody says there's not, they're not as bad as Hitler, here's what you do. You look them in the eye and say, you know what, I'm really grateful you're not like Hitler. We don't need another Hitler on the earth and the bad things that he did. That just diffuses it all. And you agree with them. You never accuse them of being Hitler, but they're feeling it. And they're becoming defensive. And that may not, that's just one popular defense mechanism because it is hard to be face to face with the reality of your own failures and your own mistakes. And again, our focus is on the hope of heaven. But we gotta use the right language so that they'll hear us. Billy Graham put it this way, and I quote, the evangelistic harvest is always urgent. The destiny of men and of nations is always being decided. Every generation is strategic. We are not responsible for the past generation and we don't bear full responsibility for the next one, but we do have our generation. And God will hold us responsible for how well we fulfill our responsibilities to this age and take every advantage of our opportunities. And here at Calvary, we're not only wanting to take advantage of every opportunity, but we want to see more opportunity. We, we want to use every tool available. I want to do everything with my life that I possibly can with the life that God has given me to bring the gospel to my generation. I want to leverage every opportunity. I want to use every form of media. I want to use every form of technology and do everything that we can individually and as a church family to reach people with the message of Jesus Christ. We never mess with the message, but the methods have to change. Have to change. Notice as we close now, verse 30. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Because he's appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he's ordained. He's given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked and others said, we'll hear you on again on this matter. So Paul departed from them. However, some men joined him and believed, among them Dionysius, the Areopagite, which is the guy that oversaw that whole area. So it would be like seeing a guy that you work with get saved, your boss, and a woman by the name of Damaris and others with them. Which brings us to the final point. We must, number five, we must preach the whole gospel. It must, all of it needs to be shared. We can't hold things out. While there's always a place of being tactful and there's always a place for relevance, building the bridge culturally, we must preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. If your gospel presentation does not include the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, then you have not authentically preached the gospel, period. It must have it all. The message is simple. And one of the best compliments that anyone can ever give me, sometimes it's even given as a complaint, but it's okay, I receive it. One of the best compliments that anyone can ever give me is that, you know what, Ed, that was really simple. 
And it's good. If a pastor makes a very complicated thing simple for you, you don't want pastors making things harder for you to understand. You want them making it easier to understand. And so when you're sharing the gospel, if someone says, well, that's really simple, thank you. That's exactly my goal. I want you to understand how much God loves you. I want you to feel his power. I want you to enter, I want you to enter into a relationship with him. We need to give the whole gospel and leave the results to God. You know, people that write uh, books about the Bible, uh, we refer to them as commentaries. And these are wise men, uh, godly men, very well-educated men that will read the Bible and they'll comment on it. And we, well, as pastors, will often refer to these books known as commentaries to see what a pastor, after my message is done, I wanna see what another pastor that I respect said in case I got it wrong or a different point of view or a different perspective. And commentators on this section of the Bible, they disagree, they argue. They argue over this section, and some say that Paul was a miserable failure here. Because look, he preached on Mars Hill, he didn't mention the word cross, and because he didn't mention, only a few people got saved. And so they say he's a miserable failure here in his presentation. I disagree with that. I do not believe in any way Paul was a failure here. Because you don't measure success by the numbers. God measures success by his definition, by faithfulness. And let me just ask you this question. I want you to answer out loud, yes or no. You ready? Is the life-changing work of the gospel in Dionysius' life and family, is that good? Yes or no? Is that a success? How about the life-changing Damaris? And when she brought back to her home and to her family, is that good for the gospel of Jesus Christ? Yes or no? Yes. So share, church love, care. Don't measure by the outcome because the Bible says some people water, some people plant the seed of the gospel, some people water, but it's God that gives the increase. So trust him and by all means, have a burden for the lost, number one. Go where the people are, number two. Be tactful, number three. Be culturally relevant, number four. And finally, preach the whole gospel of Jesus Christ. That's how we're entering into this new year with a new passion for the gospel that God would use us in great ways. And so, Father, thank you for the privilege of a church that resonates with this message. We felt the same response at each of our services. For those listening in, forgive us, God, for our failure in this area. Forgive us for being sidetracked. I don't like this and I don't like that and I don't want this and I don't want that. But rather, God, that we wouldn't be caught up in the I generation but have a burden for the lost. And so pour out, God, in a spirit and anointing upon us and please use us in these last days. We know things are dark. We know things are difficult. But we all have a, a brother that needs to be saved. We have an uncle, a dad, a friend, a boss. There are literally in our city millions of people that are not connected with you yet and help us to leverage every opportunity. Help me, God, to speak the right language without compromise, uh, without you know, jumping in and doing what they're doing, but to be all things to all people and be able to relate to the people that are in front of me. Help me, God. I don't wanna be an irrelevant pastor, but rather I wanna take your word and supernaturally by your spirit deliver it in a way where it speaks to us and it moves us to love and joy and service. So Lord, thank you for gathering us today. May you be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. Or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.